Hi, I'm James Bray. And I'm Anne-Marie Ingtuff Larson. And this is the World Economic Forum's podcast, Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution. The Deepwater Horizon oil spill is the biggest marine oil spill in industrial history, an ecological disaster so great that it's got its own Mark Wahlberg movie. When the oil leak was discovered back in 2010, BP initially provided estimates that the flow of oil into the Gulf of Mexico was between 1,000 and 5,000 barrels per day. John Amos is a former industry geologist who had quit his job to found SkyTruth, an outfit using satellite images to reveal environmental degradation. Along with most of the world, he was watching. As soon as we heard that there was a problem on an offshore drill rig, we started looking for imagery to see if we could see what was going on. And within days, using public satellite imagery and measuring the size of the growing oil slick out in the Gulf of Mexico, we were able to do some fairly simple calculations about the rate at which the oil had to be gushing out of that broken well. 5,000 feet down. And the numbers we came up with were startling and a little bit alarming because we came up with a rate of spill that was 20 to 25 times greater than the rate that BP was telling the Coast Guard and telling the public. And uh, and it turned out in ensuing weeks, our shocking calculations, I think, helped get uh, government scientists and government science agencies involved in the problem of measuring the spill. And, um, and their ultimate conclusion was that the rate of flow from that well was 50 to 60 times greater than BP was telling the public uh, in the early days of the spill. And, and that really changed the public understanding of how bad uh, an oil spill from modern offshore deep water drilling could be. Um, and one of the things I'm really proud about from that event is, um, you know, if, if BP's numbers had gone unchallenged, um, then it, it would have resulted in billions of dollars in less money for restoration projects in the Gulf region to help the Gulf region recover from the spill. So I'm pretty proud that we were able to weigh in on this issue of international significance in a credible way. John wasn't the only one spurred to action by the wall-to-wall coverage of what was clearly becoming a standout environmental catastrophe. Over at the XPRIZE Foundation, which creates monetary prizes for innovators who can solve big problems for humanity, they decided to put up a prize. Paul Bunjay, their chief scientist, takes up the story. As you may recall at that time, there was this, this just general lament that we couldn't do anything about this. There's this oil that's spilling for uh, ultimately months. And uh, not only stopping that, but cleaning up that oil was a daunting task that nobody had any good ideas for. So we put together a relatively small competition at that time, $1.4 million, and said, whoever can more than double the rate of cleaning up oil from from these oceanic oil spills can more than double the rate of what the industry can do. And the industry had been doing this for 30 years. The rate hasn't changed. Their their technology literally hadn't changed in decades. Whoever can do that wins. 
We had 10 finalists show up in, in the one facility in the world where you could spill oil at scale and, and, uh, and, and, and then clean it up to test these technologies. Seven of the finalist teams actually bested that, that industry standard. The winner quadrupled the industry standard. And all of that in less than 14 months. They had a really interesting, so that the winning technology out of the Oil Cleanup X Prize, uh, it was a team called Elastec American Marine. It was a small business out of southern Illinois, which is on the Mississippi River, but not near an ocean, notably. Uh, and the, the founder of this company had had an idea many years previously to essentially use these rotating disks with specific size and shape and, and geometry of grooves that are on them so that he could use capillary action for picking up oil in a scaled way. And he had this idea that was just sitting on a shelf. It was not a part of this, this, his company's business line until the XPRIZE came along. And he said, you know what, I have this idea that might work. And it gave him the incentive and the opportunity to try it, and it did. These stories are just a couple of examples of what a lot of environmentalists hope will be one of the biggest success stories of the fourth industrial revolution. Technological innovation dramatically improving our stewardship for our environment and ultimately reversing the degradation we already caused. Jonathan Port is a former director of Friends of the Earth and has spent much of his career in environmentalism. I think the thing that has really got my excited interest is the combination of technologies that previously might have been thought of in separate silos, techie silos as it were, but it's when you start looking at the combination of advances in renewables plus storage plus super sophisticated demand management technologies that are now coming forward uh, plus the ability to think very differently about grids, uh, microgrids, local grids, um, how to build all of that, and then all underpinned by a very radical approach to energy efficiency in our built environment and in infrastructure development. It's that combination, synergistic combination, that actually makes the story about the fourth industrial revolution so compelling. It's these combinations, so that in energy, same in transport, when you look at what's entailed in the substitution of primarily electric vehicles substituting for fossil fuel vehicles. It isn't really the electric vehicle on its own. It's the combination of that plus battery technology plus the whole notion of autonomous cars plus the whole notion of moving people away from private ownership of a car into a very different notion of transport provided as a service for people. It's these amazing synergistic interactions that actually make this a revolution rather than just another series of incremental changes along the way. Lauren Fletcher is the founder and CEO of Biocarbon Engineering, which calls itself an ecosystem restoration company. What that means is pretty cool. They use drones to plant trees. They literally fly drones around shooting seed pods into the ground. As well as sounding like tremendous fun, they hope that this can help the world cash some of the big environmental checks its leaders have written in recent years think about you know the 350 million hectare commitment that's been made by a, a number of large governments around the world through you know the New York Declaration of Force the bond challenge the uh, different cop uh, years um, the Africa 100 another great program uh, and so that 350 million hectares I mean that's basically an area the size of India if you if you uh, put it all together and it equates to about 300 billion trees. So there's there's a really big job and a really big commitment out there. 
but relying on the current state of the art as the only solution, we'll, we'll never get there. Lauren got interested in reforestation a few years back, and he wondered why it was such a slow process. Then, like all the entrepreneurs in this episode, his technological background allowed him a eureka moment. And at that point, I, it really took me all of about you know 15 minutes of searching on, on Google to really understand that. It's because the state of the art in reforestation is uh, people with a bag of saplings on their shoulder, you know, walking around uh, landscapes and, and planting trees by hand. And that was as automated as we got. You know, I took a look at that. And I'm like, oh, well, yeah, but, you know, I work, I work for NASA. You know, we got remote sensing and we got robotics and we've got AI and drones are coming along. And there's got to be a way that we can combine these emerging technologies in a way that can create a tool that allows those same hand planters to plant trees at 150 times faster than they're doing today. Uh, so that was the advent of the, of, of the idea. Our system works in two phases. We start with taking detailed maps with satellite and UAV datasets, and we crunch this data through a machine learning algorithm in order to produce a precise planting pattern. Next, we upload this pattern into our planting drones. These fly at three meters off the ground, and fire a biodegradable capsule filled with nutrients and the seed at each of the predetermined locations. These penetrate the earth, are activated by moisture, and contain everything necessary for germination and early growth. Two, uh, two operators running a small swarm of drones will have the capacity to plant 400,000 trees a day. And less than 50 teams will, will enable us to plant a billion trees a year, and with the potential to scale to tens of billions of trees each year. Because this is the scale that we have to think in. And if we're not thinking in, in a scale at this size, we are never going to be able to address the problem as it is today. Talk to people like Lauren and John, and it's hard not to think of them as environmentalists, whatever else they might also be. But it's all a long way from the green movement of the 1970s. In the fourth industrial revolution, Greens find themselves increasingly looking for ways to harness technologies rather than oppose them. Jonathan Porritt has been there all the way. I grew up in a world in the 70s where if you wanted to do the environment, you joined an environmental organization and or you got involved locally in campaigning groups. There wasn't a real sense of an environmental ethos permeating the whole of an economy, the whole of society. And these days, if anyone says to me, what do you think I'm best placed to do if I want to spend my life ensuring a good, stable environment for myself and future generations, I always say, well, don't bother joining an environmental organization, because that's the last place you want to be, really. The best thing is to think this stuff through from the sectors of the economy that are going to be absolutely the heart of that transformation. In fact, in my earlier days, I would advocate considerable caution about being too fixated on technology as the savior that we all need, simply because it was often out of context. It just came as a kind of get-out-of-jail-free card. Technology was sorted, and then the model of progress and of economic growth that we have at the moment can carry on largely untouched. But over the years, watching the speed of change now and the massive implications for ways of creating wealth for the world, um, I've become a real enthusiast for the available technology shifts that we can now see unfolding in society, um, just because without them, 
we don't have a viable proposition. And that's a really that's the, my starting point. This stuff makes a genuinely sustainable good world for nine billion people doable. Whereas in the past, if I'm being absolutely honest, the propositions that we might have been putting forward through Friends of the Earth or the Green Party without that technological underpinning, they weren't really they weren't really doable. They were hopes pulled out of the air rather than costed really serious plans for making that all happen. Uh, when I started SkyTruth, I started it in part because um, there was very little use of, of remote sensing and imaging from space in the environmental community. And, and I would even say that, you know, many environmentalists at the time really sort of had a feeling that uh, technology was the problem, right? Not, not our friend, that the techno technology really was the cause of a lot of the environmental evils that, that, that they were trying to call attention to and, and, and get us to fix. I think there's been quite an evolution among people in the environmental community uh, who are now becoming very data-oriented, um, very, uh, um, you know, really embracing the new technologies uh, that are available. So, um, yes, I think, I think the, the new generation of environmentalists are, are basically going to be hackers, figuring out how to apply all these new tools and technology and integrate them in ways that um, help get the broader public more engaged and involved on environmental issues. Uh, I actually see us being on the cusp of a um, kind of a, a technology-driven revitalization of grassroots environmentalism, um, where technology is going to allow us to make things hyper-local and therefore hyper-relevant to people everywhere as a way to get them engaged. I, I dream of being able to hire, you know, my own artificial intelligence and machine vision uh, experts because I've got a long list of projects I could immediately put them to work on. AI geeks out there who want to save the oceans, you know who to contact. In the meantime, John enlisted the help of Big Tech for the latest iteration of his mission. We're using data from satellites to collect radio frequency broadcasts from ships on the ocean, hundreds of miles below. And these radio frequency broadcasts are for a system that on any given day, uh, more than a couple hundred thousand vessels on the ocean are broadcasting, uh, and it's called AIS, Automatic Identification System. And this was developed as a safety system um, of uh, a ship-to-ship -ship communication system so they could avoid running into each other out in the middle of the ocean. So ships are broadcasting these signals. Well, it turns out that satellites with radio frequency receivers on board at the right frequency can collect these signals. And so companies have been launching these AIS satellites and collecting the data. And um, so we decided to start uh, looking at this data, specifically looking at fishing vessels. And we found that um, we could monitor the movement and identity of tens of thousands of fishing vessels out in the ocean. And with the use of some machine learning with help from our friends at Google, uh, we're able to automate 
the detection of not only the presence of these fishing vessels out in the ocean, but what they're doing at any given moment. And we can even see when they put fishing gear in the water and actually start fishing. And that was an aha moment when we realized that, um, because uh, we, we thought, what an interesting thing that would be if we could make, make a map of the whole ocean and show all of the commercial fishing activity, trackable commercial fishing activity that was happening in the ocean. Think of all the things you could do with that. So we partnered with Google, and we partnered with an ocean conservation organization called Oceana, uh, and SkyTruth um, assembled and led the team that wrote the computer code to build what became Global Fishing Watch. And now anybody can go to globalfishingwatch.org and they can see an interactive map showing all of the trackable fishing activity that we've detected in the ocean. This is the kind of multi-organizational collaboration that we love here at the forum, of course. So props, guys. One obvious loophole here is basically, what if ships just turn off their transponders? Of course, it's possible, but what if buyers simply excluded fish that came from boats that had turned their transponders off? All you need is a piece of technology to allow you to be able to know that. Enter Jessie Baker, founder of Provenance. For her, the epiphany came when she learned about blockchain. Provenance is a software platform designed for businesses all along the supply chain. So producers, manufacturers, brands and retailers to open up more data about their business and about their products. The data is usually related to origin, the journey and the social and environmental impact of the products. We then help businesses validate certain types of data. So, for example, um, storing digital certificates that prove certain attributes about their products. And then we help uh, businesses to track their products through the supply chain. So issuing kind of like digital passports for a product that can cascade through the chain, carrying the key validated data about those products. Many people are now looking at the use of blockchains in supply chains, and I believe we were certainly the first, if one of the first, companies in the world to, to do that. And we are certainly the first company to say that blockchains could be used as a method for gathering social and environmental data and tracking that through a supply chain. I began Provenance out of a personal frustration for how little we know about products and out of a love for voluntary sustainability standards. Um, I believe they've done a huge amount to change the way in which we shop, but I don't believe they were designed for a digital age. Many of them came about in the 70s when the internet wasn't even a thing. So for me, there was an exciting opportunity to help bring things like voluntary sustainability standards and certifications into the digital age and empower shoppers all the way along the supply chain to have more access to information about where products come from. This speaks to another trend of the new generation of tech-enabled environmentalists. There's a pragmatism that arguably was absent from the early days of the green movement. There's a willingness to harness not just the power of technology, but of markets as well. Instead of lecturing consumers, they are finding ways to use technology to empower them. It might lack romanticism, but it's true nonetheless. Change shopping habits and you can change the world. So the big idea behind Provenance is that today um, we're used to marketplaces competing on price. And price is quite a transparent metric that we know about most products. 
we've become more used to analyzing quality and functionality of products in a digital way with things like star ratings um, by the market for how good they think a product is. And for the time being, um, sustainability metrics related to the environment or society are, are not a kind of core part of choosing one product over another. And they certainly aren't in a digital format that's easy to understand. So if provenance succeeds, what we would have done is enabled every great product to come with accessible, trustworthy information about the origin, journey and impact. And we believe that can mean that sustainability metrics become a key driver in marketplaces and can help incentivize better behavior all the way along a supply chain. We have extensively researched um, the market drivers uh, associated with transparency and more responsible behavior. And we're seeing a huge um, trend in particularly millennial consumers shopping online who are more interested in finding out about the social environmental impact um, of their products than any other generation. Um, and for us, this places us up with a lot of confidence. They're a digitally savvy uh, consumer that's that's ready to, to put their money where their mouth is beyond just a brand or an advertising campaign, but looking more at the substance and purpose of a business. So for us, um, we believe that we can we empower that generation with the ability to make those decisions and discover data they need to make those decisions. We can help drive more conscious forms of consumption. There's now a burgeoning effort in carbon utilization uh, itself. So not just capturing CO2 and maybe storing it, but converting it into something useful that, that can be used. And, and uh, uh, where I'm sitting right now at, at XPRIZE, there's a number of semifinalists that are being tested for how it is that they can convert CO2 in any, into any number of products. Think building materials like concretes, think chemical precursors for anything that we might use from paint to toothpaste, even into... Um, proteins, for example, there's there's a there's a, a another company not not even competing called uh, there, there's one competing in the Carbon X Prize and there's another company that's also competing with them to make fish feed out of carbon dioxide as its as its feedstock. So that's pretty remarkable because now it means we have the power not just to uh, monitor carbon dioxide, not just to capture carbon dioxide, but to turn market forces onto converting it into something useful so that. It's not just a waste product that pollutes the planet with excess greenhouse gases, but now can be maybe a feedstock for something useful. That, that convergence of, of market forces with technology is, is going to be really transformative. What many of these projects have in common is making the invisible visible. The underlying belief is that consumers will make positive choices, people will take action if only they can see what is happening. Technology lets us see what polluters and exploiters would prefer we didn't. John Amos knows it can change people, because it happened to him. Back in the mid-1990s, at the company I worked for, uh, uh, I saw a fantastic satellite image, Landsat satellite image that had been collected, uh, and we produced it for the Forest Service. And it showed, um, in the middle of the image, Mount St. Helens. And... Uh, you all probably remember Mount St. Helens um, had a spectacular eruption um, back, I think, in 1980 it was. Um, and this satellite image was collected about 10 years later. And you could clearly see the blast zone around the volcano where the forest had just been leveled by the force of the eruption. And what was really interesting about that image to me was... Um, 
in the national forests surrounding Mount St. Helens for miles and miles, the forest itself was this kind of decimated checkerboard of clear-cutting, intentional clear-cutting. And, uh, and so we were logging that forest and cumulatively, you know, in effect, destroying far more forest than that cataclysmic natural event had done. And uh, I remember describing this satellite image to my, my parents on the phone one evening, and uh, my parents are both pretty well-educated people, a uh, librarian and a geologist, college-educated. Uh, they read the newspaper every day. They watched the evening news every, every night. And, and as I described what I saw in this image, they got quiet for a second. And then um, I think it was my mother asked me, she said, do you mean they cut down trees in national forests? And I went, and that was a revelation for me. I went, oh, aha, you know, here are reasonably informed people who don't even know that our national forests are being managed um, largely to produce timber uh, for the benefit of private companies. And this satellite image told that story in a nutshell. And I started thinking, you know, Everybody needs to have access to these images. These images that cost thousands of dollars, uh, they shouldn't be only for the privileged few to see. They should be available to everyone. Since then, the cost of getting those images and the difficulty of analyzing and distributing them has fallen through the floor. But technology is having the same effect with other phenomena that are literally invisible. Aklima is a company that is using remote sensor data to map air pollution and built a whole new set of expectations around environmental intelligence. Kim Hunter is their VP of Communications and Engagement. Part of 4IR is the idea that you know sensors are going to be ubiquitous and global over the coming years. And we see that opportunity using environmental sensor networks to create this new layer of environmental data, high resolution, looking at how pollution is moving through cities, um, through our states, through our communities, how do we make pollution personal and how do we use this data to help inform stakeholders from mothers to business owners to mayors? So in the future, we see this layer of environmental data of understanding, you know, this invisible, making the invisible visible as helping to drive decisions that we currently haven't been able to make because we haven't had the data. You know, 50% of, of urban infrastructure that will exist in 2050 hasn't been built yet. Much of that infrastructure that exists today has been built with a lack of data or absence of understanding how our decisions affect the quality of our environment. Currently in America, and we have sort of the gold standard for air quality measurement, you can see regional air quality, but you can't see it at a block-by-block -block level. And so what we think about uh, the opportunity with this sort of technology is that it's really a Fitbit for the planet. And when we think about this sort of layer of environmental data, we really think about um, how GPS really has been integrated into our phones and helps us navigate where we are in the world. And every app that we use today is using my geo um, positioning to inform uh, better decisions and, and choices that I have avail available to, to me based on my geographic area. We see the same environmental intelligence 
being the new GPS. So how can we have the quality of our environment and this layer of environmental data really feeding into the applications that we use every day to make better and smarter decisions so that we navigate our world not just based on where we are, but the quality of the environment where we are. We see this layer of environmental intelligence really transforming how we can manage our health, our cities, as well as our interventions for clim combating climate change at the street level. How are we designing our transportation systems to minimize exposure to air pollution um, and not just um, help people get from A to B? The flip side is, as ever, as new 4AR technologies solve old problems, they're also fully capable of creating new ones. This applies to consumer products, but also to some of the geoengineering ideas that have surfaced, some of which are quite dramatic. There are some things that, um, when I wake up at night and start thinking about, keep me up at night. Um, one, of the, one of these is just the kind of explosion in um, micro-technologies. Um, you know, uh, the development of micro-beads and um, um, other, uh, I don't know how to describe this really, um, the miniaturization of stuff that we're creating down to the almost cellular level. Uh, and and that and and things like that are starting to show up in the environment. Um, uh, microplastics in the ocean um, showing up in the food chain of animals in the in, in the far Arctic and, and Antarctic. Um, and I, I think we just you know we the the technology here is way ahead of our understanding of what the consequences of that um, are going to be in terms of the. The, the infiltration of um, these substances into uh, life on Earth at the most basic levels of ecosystems and food chains. So that, that worries me a little bit. Um, I'm also a little uh, concerned about genetic manipulation being used to create new organisms. Uh, and inevitably, when those new organisms, uh, including some totally novel things, not just modified existing organisms, but totally new from scratch organisms, when those things get loose inevitably in the environment, uh, what's going to happen? Um, so again, I get a little concerned about that. Um, perhaps the one that is most favored by the, um, I call it this kind of get out of jail free card school of think thinking, is to spray sulfur dioxide or sulfates of one kind or another into the upper atmosphere to act in such a way that a volcano would act. So many people refer back to the explosion of the Tambora uh, volcano um, in the 19th century and they can look in the climate record and see that for at least two years it had a dramatic cooling effect on the atmosphere. And this is absolutely accepted by climate scientists. There's no question about that. If you put enough particulate matter into the upper atmosphere, you will reduce the warming effect. Possibly quite devastatingly, because when Tambora went off, it had huge dislocation effects in countries all around the world. Um, there were whole periods of time where crops just didn't grow. So, comes with a bit of a sting in the tail. Now, you could do this, and there's no doubt that, that it's viable and probably less costly than many of the other geoengineering techniques. But you have to ask, 
Does that mean to say we then go on doing it forever? Because even as you put the aerosols up there, you put the gases up there to create this effect in the upper atmosphere, you're still burning fossil fuels, you're still putting more CO2 into the atmosphere, unless we change that whole proposition. Um, you can push out a little bit further into some wild and wacky stuff, which is the whole notion about putting huge solar reflectors in outer space so that you can get a different kind of effect going, um, bringing solar energy down to Earth in a completely different way. There are lots of proposals about managing solar radiation in general. So it, it's a long list of potential interventions, and we're going to have to work our way through that. Unfortunately, nobody can afford to break out the champagne just yet. As with all areas we've covered in this series, the environmental outcomes of the fourth industrial revolution are all still to play for. New technologies look like they could have a golden opportunity for humanity to stop and reverse the degradation that two centuries of industrialization has wrought, but there is plenty of work to do still. New technologies will need to be vetted, regulations put in place, promising innovations nurtured to colossal scale if their promise is to be realized. You've been listening to Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution with me, James Bray. And me, Anne-Marie Larson. Thank you for listening. Join us for the next episode, where we will be talking to the educators and technologists who want to revolutionize what we learn and how we do it. And if you want to know more about this topic, check out the World Economic Forum's new book, Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution. The book is designed to give clarity to how all these exciting new technologies impact all aspects of society and empower you to engage personally in this unfolding revolution. You can buy the book on Amazon. <laughs>